0: God, we are here to declare we have no king but you. You have called us out and clustered us together as one of your local churches. Our desire is to be a faithful church, a biblical church, a fruit-producing church. Even today, bear fruit to the glory and praise of your name. Please do not deal with us as our sins deserve. Deal with us in grace. Show us ourselves, our sin, our bankruptcy, our need, and show us our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, and King. We beg of you to meet with us this hour. That you make the Bible go from black and white to color. Holy Spirit. Make the book live. Make the soul hungry. And make the spirit refreshed. Do it Father. By lifting high the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The resurrected Christ has appeared in a vision to John and commissioned him to write seven letters to seven churches. Jesus first wrote the Heady Church in Ephesus. They possessed the ability to work through complex theological issues. Jesus commended them for loving him with their minds but rebuke them for not loving him with their hearts. Jesus says, I will settle for nothing less than your head and your heart. They were cranial, but not cardiological. Jesus did not want them to stop being a heady church. He wanted them to be a heady church and a hearty church. Keep your informed mind and regain an inflamed heart. Jesus wrote secondly to the persecuted church in Smyrna. FFC, the church should expect to be in conflict with the culture that hates her master. Persecution has always been the environment in which the church has existed. One theologian said, To suffer is not an indication of God's disappointment with us, but of our identification with Jesus. Jesus wants the persecuted church to be more afraid of displeasing him than dying. Fear not and be faithful unto death. Young Polycarp sitting in the pew said, "Mm, words to die by. Jesus writes to the heady church, to the persecuted church, now to what I'm calling the compromising church. You may hear the word compromising and immediately think, oh, they're some jellyfish. They have no backbones. They are yellow-bellied cowards. But that would not be an accurate portrait of this church. Also, it would not be an accurate view of what most compromising is. You can be brave, but compromising. Three movements in the text. Movement number one. Areas where the church is not compromising. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Movement number two, areas where the church is compromising. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And then, third movement is how the church can stop compromising and be rewarded. Revelation chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Areas where the church is not compromising, areas where the church is compromising. How the church can stop compromising and be rewarded. Three movements. And instead of my usual waiting until the end to give you all the applications, I'm going to sprinkle the applications throughout the exposition. First, areas where the church is not compromising. Notice verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now let's stop here. What was this city like? It was built on a mountain, 800 feet above sea level. It was an acropolis, which is not a word we use often. It basically means a high city. It was about twice the population of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. The wealthy citizens lived on top of the mountain, and the peasants lived below in little villages. You see on the mountain, there was an amphitheater, the steepest one in the ancient world. You could speak with normal volume and they could hear you at the top. It had incredible acoustics. The city was known for plays, musicals, entertainment, shows. They boasted of a little sophistication during the day. They'd give lectures in the amphitheater and people would come from all over to hear. They built a famous library with 200,000 volumes in it, all handwritten. And there was a bit of a nerd rivalry going on with Pergamum and Alexandria on who had the best library. This one had a large main reading area with shelves all around. Books were written on parchment, rolled, and then stored. In fact, this city is credited with inventing writing on parchment riding on skins of sheep and goats. I don't, I don't think they invented it. I think Egypt did that. But they were the first to mass manufacture parchment and send it all over the known world. Legend has it that Mark Antony invaded the city, conquered it, and gave the 200,000 books to Cleopatra as a wedding present. <laughs> I hope she liked to read Anyway, the whole library thing was maybe 130 years before the church received this letter. They were familiar with letters and books, but they had never received a letter from Jesus and never held an inspired book. They boasted of sophistication during the day, but when the lights went out, the city was known for prostitution, drinking, Illicit activity. It was little Vegas. What happens in Vegas? You finish it for me. What happens in Vegas? (laughs) Yeah, it scares me. You know that. (laughs) Pergamum became a sophisticated party town. Like a college town. Lots of books and lots of booze. Lots of classes and lots of glasses. Lots of libraries and lots of loose living. Lots of reading and lots of revelry. A place to study and a place of seduction. A place to dive into all kinds of subject matter and a place to dive into all kinds of sinful matter. Much like a military town, they wore uniforms during the day and wore party outfits during the night. In the middle of all this sophistication and sinful living, God planted a church. Verse 12. To the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This church in Pergamum gathers for their corporate worship on the Lord's Day. They hear that the resurrected Jesus Christ wrote them a personal letter. They have words that dropped from his lips on parchment. Parchment that they produced. Imagine if Jesus wrote a letter to your church and he did so decades after he ascended into heaven. Jesus does not introduce himself in a random way, but in a particular way. This letter comes from the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. We know from chapter one, the sword is coming out of his mouth. He draws the sword from the sheath of his mouth. In the Greek, it's the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. Why would Jesus identify himself this way to this church? Well, Christians in the city were facing the Roman sword. And Jesus wanted to remind them that the Romans will face his sword. The sword was a Roman symbol of power and judgment. Historians tell us it looked like a tongue. It was a tongue-shaped sword. By Jesus presenting himself with a sword, a double-edged one, a sharp one, coming out of his mouth where his tongue would be, it was a reminder, I hold all the power and all the judgment. Verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Let's stop here. Why did Jesus call Pergamum Satan's throne? There are three possibilities, and I think it's a combination of all three. First, their polytheistic practices made the city a sensual city. The city and its inhabitants worshiped many different gods, there were more than 50 gods and goddesses worshiped in the city. Most of the ancient world was syncretistic. They merged different religions and gods together. Pergamum was, adding a, Pergamum was fine with adding another god. They just didn't want a god that held exclusive claims. The city was the center of paganism. It wasn't just built on a hill, it was built on idolatry. They worshipped Athena, the goddess of wisdom and politics. In her temple, they had a picture of Zeus's head being split open and her being taken out. If you wanted to be smart, to have wisdom, you worshipped Athena. Then there was Demeter. She was the Greek goddess of agriculture, the giver of food. You need bread? You go to Demeter. Then there was Dionysus. He was the Greek god of fertility and wine. You want to get drunk and be sexually illicit? You can do that in the name of worship at his temple. The city held a three-day Mardi Gras festival in his honor. It was sex worship. They played their sex and religion games. Because of these gods and their sensual worship, Pergamum was Satan's throne. So I think it was three reasons why it was called Satan's throne. First, their polytheistic practices made the city a sensual city. Secondly, they worshipped Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. Asclepius means healing. Here's a modern statue of him. Dude had a killer perm. (laughs) He would have been the stuff in the 80s. This, This god claimed to be the savior. And in his temple, snakes roamed free. He promised healing from diseases so you would go lay in his temple and the snakes would crawl over you and impart healing. His temples served as ancient hospitals. People flocked to them. This is Satan's hospital. The snake moved from the garden in Genesis to the hospital in Pergamum. The ancient snake is still deceiving with empty promises. Notice his pole with a, a snake wrapped around it. Pergamum became a medical center. They practiced alternative medicine. It was funded by the elite living on the Acropolis, the test rats or the poor down in the villages. They had ancient spas rumored to contain healing. They did music therapy, mud baths, dream therapy where they drugged people. Some of you have seen the American Cancer Society and their emblem, a a pole with a snake wrapped around. You don't need to think that's demonic or worshiping a false god, but this is where they got it. Why did Jesus call Pergamum Satan's throne? First, their polytheistic practices made the city a sensual city. Secondly, they worshiped Asclepius, who was the god of medicine and claimed to be the savior. So it was a sensual city. It was a snake city. And then thirdly, the topography. Uh, the shape of the hill was like an actual throne if you viewed it walking from the bottom. In this rendering of the city, this modern rendering, you see on the left Zeus's temple. It looked like a giant throne. Historians believe this was the main reason the city was referred to as Satan's throne. This is where Satan could sit down and rest his arms. Occult work, magic arts characterized the city. It was the epicenter of satanic practices, the center of demonic activity. Now we know all of these gods didn't really exist. It was all worship to Satan himself. This was a sex-addicted city, a snake-addicted city. It was a satanic-addicted city. Why was Pergamum called Satan's throne? You can really take your pick. All three options would work. I think all three options contributed. This is the devil's den. Satan's headquarters. Lucifer's lounge. Beelzebub's hot tub. Verse 13. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Church of Pergamum, you, you never once denied my name, even when the pressure was on. You lived on Satan's turf, in his stronghold, and you're, you're not denying my name. They come to your door with a tongue-like sword, and you refuse to recant Christianity. You're no jellyfish. You have a steel backbone. You haven't proved to be yellow-bellied cowards. Their home was where Satan has his home. It's like, Kyle, oh, I thought Satan dwelled in Cameron Indoor Stadium. Yes, that's true. There and in Pergamum. Here's a church that has paid a price They've seen one of their own die. Antipas is one of the earliest non-disciple martyrs. History tells us that Antipas was put in a brass bowl and he was roasted, slow roasted. Deny Christ and we will put you in a large bowl with the fire kindling under it. Antipas said, praise God that I could be counted worthy to slow roast for Christ. Jesus gives Antipas the title faithful witness. This is the same title Jesus used to refer to himself in chapter 1. The original word is where we get our word martyr. Jesus says, my faithful martyr. Now I told you I'm going to sprinkle applications throughout the exposition, so here's the first application. Sometimes it's God's will you to live in very sinful, demonic cities. Jesus did not tell the church flee Pergamum. He didn't tell them to run and get out of Dodge. Leave town. Don't live by Satan's throne. Pack up and move to Colorado Springs, Colorado. Your children need to be around Mr. Whitaker's throne, not Satan's. Church at Pergamum, you need to leave where Asclepius is worshipped. Leave him and his perm. And go south. Go to the Bible Belt. You'll still find perms there. <laughs> you need to move away from Lucifer's Lounge and go to Billy Graham's Retreat Center. No. This was a tough place to live. They didn't have churches on every corner. Sometimes it's the will of God for you to live in, a, in very wicked cultures. So that you can be a light. Don't be surprised when God plants a church in North Korea, Yemen, India, the Congo, South Sudan, Pakistan. And he says you're living in Satan's throne facing persecution and there's no way out. Be faithful unto death like Antipas. Jesus said in John 17, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world like sheep to the slaughter." The church is not told to bunker down, build a compound, or isolate themselves. No. Live in the city and be a gospel light to the city. Well, Kyle, I don't want to drive by that strip club every day. I don't want to raise my children where they're consistently distorting genders. I want to get out of Beelzebub's hot tub... I want to leave Satan's headquarters. I want to get away from the snakes. Oh. You want to live in a safe utopia where the children are only surrounded by positive influences, where there isn't temptation on every corner, where everyone loves Jesus just like you do. That doesn't exist, friend. Be a light even when you work in Satan's headquarters. God put you in Pergamum for a reason. Live out the gospel in the devil's den. There is coming a day when God will create a new earth. And in it, there will be no dangers, no sin, no brass bowls. But we aren't there yet. Until then. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in Pergamum. Application number two. You may be living in the most hellish environment, but you are not out of God's sight. (laughs) This had to be comforting for this church to hear. He sees when you face that verbal abuse. He sees the tears of his saints and he bottles them up. He sees the beaten and bruised. What happened to Antipas did not escape his notice. You keep walking with Jesus. You keep crying out to him. You keep pleading for justice. You keep facing hell on earth because you will be spared from hell and eternity. This church did not let their circumstances dictate their devotion. When you're roasting in the brass bowl, remember... Jesus faced worse on your behalf. He was slow roasted, not in a brass bowl, but in the wrath of God. He paid the ransom for your sin. You have hope, church, not because you may be slow roasted for him, but because he was slow roasted for you. I know where you dwell. I know what's happening to you. And I will make it right. The first movement in our text was areas where the church is not compromising, verses 12 and 13. Now let's look at the second movement, areas where the church is compromising, verses 14 and 15. You take a step back, it's just mind-boggling. This church faced persecution, and they did not compromise. This church faced idolatry, and they did compromise. This church faced immorality, and they did compromise. Recant Christ or be slow-roasted, they wouldn't budge. Assimilate to the wicked practices of your culture, they budged. Take on the morality of Pergamum, they budged. There are two sins on display in verses 14 and 15 idolatry and immorality. Verse 14 is the teaching of Balaam, idolatry. This is where the church compromised theologically. Verse 15 is the teaching of the Nicolaitans, immorality. This is where the church compromised ethically. Teaching of Balaam, that's idolatry. It's theological compromise. Teaching of the Nicolaitans, that's immorality. That's moral or ethical Compromise which gives me a good time to drop on you the third application. Satan doesn't care how you compromise as long as you compromise. The church withstood the frontal assault of Satan, persecution, (laughs) but they let him in through the back door. Satan took a more subtle means to destroy the church. If the devil can't kill a church, he will join it If he can't slow roast them, he will infiltrate them with idolatry and immorality. He'll swing idolatry and immorality before the eyes of the people. He preaches the gospel of accommodation. He will make compromise seem very convenient and seemingly like it's the only possible way to go forward. I mean, there's there's no other option. See, Satan is good at his job. Beloved, there is always another option. Honor God instead of compromise. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, in case you were not in the book of Numbers for your Bible reading this morning, let me unpack this teaching of Balaam. The Old Testament counterpart to Judas Iscariot was Balaam. He was a preacher for hire. A prophet for hire is more like it. Not one of God's prophets, but a sorcerer. So let's back it up. God set his people free from Egyptian bondage, and there they are traveling through the desert. Two million newly escaped ragtag slaves headed for the promised land. It will take longer than expected. They will be in the desert for 40 years. Toward the end of the 40 years, maybe year 39, Balak, the king of Moab, saw the Jews coming through the desert. He knew God had protected Israel the entire time in the desert. How God fed them with manna from heaven, honey flavored bread. And how God gave them victory over their attackers. Balak knew he was no match for Israel militarily. They had beaten guys with larger armies and bigger biceps. So he knew if he was going to fight them, he had to fight them on a spiritual level. Balak goes out and hires Balaam, a prophet. He wants Balaam to curse Israel. If Israel is cursed spiritually, he can defeat them physically. Balaam accepts the money. And opens his mouth to curse Israel. But only blessing comes out. (laughs) Then Balak is like, hey, I didn't pay you for that. That wasn't in the terms of the contract. Balaam says, let me try again. Same thing happens. Three times. Long story short, Balaam couldn't curse Israel. But he knew how to bring them down. Balaam couldn't curse Israel, but he knew how to bring them down. And this is what he did. He told Balak to get his Moabite daughters to marry the Jewish boys and then the Jews will take the Moabite gods into their tent and by doing that, they will curse themselves. The scheme to overcome God's people was effective. Before long, these Israelite boys were partaking of pagan Moabite feasts. God became angry at their idolatry and God ended up killing 24,000 Israelites to halt their compromising slide. There's even one event where Balaam is riding his donkey. You remember this? To meet the Moabite king, and the angel stands in the middle of the path. The donkey saw the angel, but Balaam didn't. The donkey laid down in the path and refused to move. Well, this angered Balaam. He began striking the donkey with a stick. Then God allows the donkey to speak. Why are you beating me? Is this the way you treat me after I've carried all your things all your life? Balaam talks back to the donkey. If I had a sword, I would kill you. (laughs) It's a comical scene. It could be a movie. Picture Jim Carrey playing the donkey. (laughs) Never once does Balaam awaken and think like, how is this donkey talking to me? The angel then shows himself to Balaam and threatens to kill Balaam with a sword. Numbers 22 through 25, you can read it for homework. The teaching of Balaam is idolatry. It's assimilating into the surrounding culture. Idolatry isn't just making sacrifices to a statue. It's incorporating the pagan practices of your culture. Uh, There were some in the church at Pergamum who went along with the cultural pagan feast and the festivals of the day. They would sacrifice sheep, pigs, goats, oxen to these false deities and probably just explain it away by saying, well everyone's doing the Asclepius sacrifices. And they would face social ostracism in the city if they didn't partake of these festivals. Each god and goddess had certain feasts during certain seasons. Some in the church began to get their acceptance and identity formed more from their culture than Christ. (laughs) They just wanted to fit in. Satan enticed them to sin and his trapping mechanism was cultural acceptance. Church at Pergamum, they are seducing you to compromise theologically. Do you not see it? That's something the world does, not something you do. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The teaching of Balaam in verse 14, that's idolatry. That's where they compromise theologically. Here in verse 15 is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's immorality. Here's where they compromise ethically. Hey, I I really want to do this, but Yahweh says it's wrong. The Nicolaitans would come in and give you a way out of that dilemma. This is the antinomian group. They think they are released by grace from the obligations of observing the moral law. This teaching appeals to the flesh. What you need is a Nicolaitan. They'll come in and distort the truth. They're open-minded. They're progressive. What Satan could not do from without, he did from within. He made them compromise. Let me drop the fourth application on you. Satan does not need to slow roast you if he can get you to assimilate into the wicked practices of the culture. Church, there is a far greater danger for us than persecution. It's assimilation. The problem is not that the church is in Pergamum, but that too much of Pergamum is in the church. We look back 1900 years to the church at Pergamum and we think... Man, how could they visit the snake temples for healing? How could they participate in the three-day Mardi Gras festival getting drunk and sleeping around? Well, you must realize that sexual abstinence before marriage and fidelity in marriage was unheard of in that culture. Sex outside of marriage was an accepted and commended practice. It was weird for a cluster of people calling themselves Christians To abstain from this behavior. In fact, 75 years before this church received this letter, Cicero, the Roman philosopher, wrote this, and I quote For for the one who thinks that men should be forbidden the love of women, he is extremely severe. He is at odds not only with the license of what our age allows, but also with the customs of our ancestors. What indeed, when indeed was this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that that which is now lawful was not lawful? End quote. (laughs) What is culturally correct may be biblically corrupt. In 1900 years, what will those Christians look back at us and say? I could see Christians in 1900 years looking back at us and saying, how in the world did they not see they were watching other people have sex on TV? How did they not think it was sinful? The historian will answer, well, it wasn't like it was straight-up pornography. I mean, it never showed anything. It It was all covered by the sheets. You just heard the moans and the pants. They could only see the sweaty shoulders. But still, history prof, common sense would tell you The history prof interrupts. Well, everybody did it. It was normal. Even pastors did it. People who wrote commentaries and taught in seminaries did it. Small group leaders did it. In fact, don't just go back 1,900 years ago, but double that. Go back 3,800 years ago in Pergamum. They had an amphitheater, and if something wasn't accepted in the culture, they would make it art and put it in plays, and then it would work its way into being acceptable in the culture. What the ancient plays did to Pergamum, TV did to Americans. It doesn't matter what the pseudo-intellectuals of our day say. Oh, it's just art. Call it what it is. Immorality. When sin gets normalized in the culture, it's tempting to accept it in the church. I'm going to say that again because I don't think you heard me. When sin gets normalized in the culture, it's tempting to accept it in the church. I still don't think you heard me. When sin gets normalized in the culture, it's tempting to accept it in the church. Yes. It's slow, but it creeps in. The sexual norms of the society shouldn't be the sexual norms of the church. Assimilation isn't merely an ancient sin. It's a modern one. What does the Bible say of this? Flee idolatry, flee immorality. The church at Pergamum wasn't maintaining sound ethics. Do you think we are? When Jesus called you, he called you away from all of that and to holiness. You can be living in the most wicked culture, but God still expects you to remain holy. Application number five. Where are you compromising? You're flirting with something, not fully closing the door to it. Compromise is subtle and dangerous because it never happens all at once. It's so gradual, you don't even notice the change. It wears you down with the daily grind, the little indulgences, the mundane compromises. Hey, teenagers, middle schoolers, It's more important to be biblical than cool. You an outsider? It's okay. We're in this together. God created us to be outsiders. Never fully at home here. Don't be a compromiser. We don't need more compromisers. You are in the world but not of the world. If we are just like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. You are in Pergamum, but not of Pergamum. If we are just like Pergamum, we have nothing to offer Pergamum. Don't lose your distinctiveness. God called Israel to be separate from other nations. They were distinct. They were peculiar. They had their own set of morals and ethics based on God's word. Church, don't lose your saltiness. Don't fall in line with the culture. Christianity is always countercultural. It's counter-Pergamum. It's counter-Hopkinsville. It's counter-Clarksville. It's counter-Fort Campbell. What characterizes them should not characterize us. Don't be like this church and be sucked back into the very sins from which you have been delivered. The first movement, areas where the church is not compromising. The second movement, areas where the church is compromising. The third movement how the church can stop compromising and be rewarded. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now we know another reason why Jesus identified himself the way he did in verse 12. He draws the sword from the sheath of his mouth the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one, Jesus will bring the sword to the church if necessary. Notice the switch from second-person pronoun to third-person pronoun. I will come to you, second-person pronoun, soon, and war against them, third-person pronoun, with the sword of my mouth. This indicates that the majority of the church did not do this, but a small minority did, and Jesus wanted it dealt with. He said, some of you there, not all of you there. Christ is grieved. Our resurrected Christ is grieved by the minority who hold to it and the majority who refuse to address it. If you see theological compromise, address it. If you see ethical compromise, address it. They are harboring a group of compromisers in the church. And maybe they need to be gently shown why it's compromise. So do it. Jesus says, repent. In other words, it's sin not to address it. He says, do it now or I will wage war on the church. (laughs) Even while others were laying down their lives for the gospel... Some in the church were laying down with temple prostitutes. Jesus will cut them in pieces with the sword of his mouth. He brings out the sword when your life isn't in step with the gospel or your doctrine isn't in step with the Bible. You say, Kyle, this is hard. This is really hard. In fact, all of the seven church sermons have been really hard so far. And we're just on number three. Good. Good. I want the tone of my sermon to be the tone of Jesus' letter. It's inconsistent and improper when the two tones are not matching. Verse 17. He who has an ear. I like that. Are your ears awake? Hey, hey, you, you hearing this? Here's where the tone turns pleasant and promising. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers? Oh, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus expects this church to repent and not face the sword. You know why? Jesus expects this church to repent and not face the sword because when his children have their sin pointed out, They rush to repent. What rewards are those? What what rewards are there for those who, who rush to repent? Well, there are three rewards. First, hidden manna. You remember the manna God fed the Israelites with while they were in the desert? Honey flavored bread that fell from heaven. It's being echoed here. This is pure manna, clean manna, not the unclean manna served by the pagan temples. Demeter doesn't give you the bread you need. Jesus does. God, these false gods, especially Demeter, cannot satisfy the hungry. Only Jesus can. And then the text says this manna is hidden. It will be revealed to God's people at the end of time. Jesus says, I'll give you some of that end time bread. So this is the first reward. Jesus sets bread on a table. It's almost like he's, Preparing a a banquet setting. The second reward, a white stone. In the ancient world, a white stone was used for quite a few different things. I think my count was eight. It had various usages. I'm just going to highlight two. First, it had a judicial use. If you were on a jury and you had a, a black stone and a white stone, you would drop the white stone in the urn for acquittal. You would drop the black stone in the urn for guilty. And so Jesus says here, I'm going to give you a white stone. You can go free. You are innocent. You are not guilty. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a judicial use, but then there's also, and, and I think this is mainly what it's pointing to, an admission use. Admission use. The, the Greco-Roman society developed ticket entrance systems into banquets, social events, and general feasts. The the white stone functioned like a ticket of admission into banquets. (laughs) Jesus says, yes, you're missing out on those Pergamum banquets. But I have a better banquet than the pagans. Better bread than the pagans. Those are all cheap imitations of what I have prepared for you. Jesus invites us to the great messianic banquet. And we don't have to bring any bread. He's got it. We don't have to pay for a ticket. He gave us the white stone. We merely walk into perfection already laid out. The third reward, a new name. In the Roman culture, the the victim of certain games, Olympic games, would have his name engraved on a stone, and that would give him access to all the regalia. Now, scholars debate this, but it seems each believer gets a new name. Isaiah 62, 2 speaks of this. And it wouldn't be unusual. I mean, Abraham, Abram became Abraham. Cephas became Peter. Saul became Paul. Alistair Beck says, if you don't like your name, it's okay. You're going to get a new one. A new name for a new earth. This might be the name. That God wrote in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. All these rewards are symbols of salvation. This is what Jesus promises his church ultimate salvation. But some of you here have already compromised. You've compromised ethically, you've compromised theologically. So what hope do you have? You have compromised. Here's your hope. Jesus never did. Repent and experience the lovely forgiveness of our lovely Christ. Non-Christians, and we have so many every Sunday. Non-Christian, the bread that the world promises will never satisfy you. Jesus has the bread that will. The sensual banquets of Pergamum or Nashville only offer temporary satisfaction. Come into this little cluster of Christians and let us teach you about the Lord's table. A banquet of endless satisfaction. Christians historically, and this is is what we need living where we live, Christians historically have not held a high place in society. In AD 178, this was maybe you know, um, 70 years after this letter was written, a pagan Roman philosopher named Celsus wrote the most sarcastic, degrading words about Christians. He describes Christians and their gatherings, and I, I want to read it to you. He says this, and I quote, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing, they count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses. Wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in mud, end quote. FFC, if we are doing what we're supposed to do, then this is how the culture will view us. We are worms convening in mud. But alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Let's stand. God... Give us the gall not to compromise. Give us the strength to resist the cultural pressures. Give us the faith to see hidden manna when we have sinful manna presented to us. Give us a smile when we're not invited to worldly banquets because we have our eyes set on a messianic one. Father, we leave stronger today than when we came. You've given us what we need. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.